Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and we are back once again with the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is producer Joe Russo. Joe, should we change the name to Postmortem AMAA? Ask me almost anything? Uh, you mean because there's a uh... There's the big bad buffer, which is me in between. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, look, we're, we we're we're pretty pretty good about answering almost everything we get. The only ones we usually skimp over are things that we've covered before, right. you know, uh, and and very few in between. So uh, I would say it's yeah, the almost is 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 uh, pretty encompassing. I would say. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, before we dive into the questions, I wanted to dive into your experience watching Jaws in 3D. Okay. Um, I'm very excited about it. I had, you know, this was a special event screening, like when I went to the 40th anniversary <laughs> screening of The Thing, which was a disaster. Yeah. This, I love Jaws. I've seen it dozens of times. I know it by heart. It's one of the most perfect movies ever made. Uh, and I'm not usually a huge fan of 3D movies. There's always ghost images or double imaging. Um, just it's never really sharp or bright enough. So I went in with low expectations and oh my God, the movie is completely new again. Yeah, uh, It worked gangbusters. It looked like Spielberg designed every shot for three dimensions. The depth is incredible and it's not gimmicky at all because it wasn't shot for 3D. There's right. no paddle ball going into the camera, uh, things like that. <laughs> but it was a thrilling experience. And Adam Green and Dave Parker were at the same show sitting behind us. So all, all of us were so thrilled with how new life was brought to something that ha is a classic and will always be a great film in ways that I never imagined were possible. I wish uh, it was playing for a longer stretch of time because I don't think I'm going to be able to get to it, but having seen your, your review and, and hearing it now too, gosh, I, I wish I had, it reminds me of when I saw a test of when they were converting Titanic to 3d under James Cameron's supervision. Uh -huh. uh, and I remember we saw the demo for it and I just was like blown away. Um, but, you know, I think Cameron and Spielberg composed their shots with such three dimensionality already. Yeah. The, the compositions are filled with depth and the layers anyway, but to see it, and a lot of 3D looks like cardboard cutouts. They're layered sure. like an old Popeye cartoon was shot. Right, right. But not this. This is incredibly robust. It sounds sounds like it's really special. I uh, hopefully hopefully I can catch it. If not, uh, you know, hopefully they'll they'll bring it back. Uh, you know, when it when it turns. Oh my God, it's going to turn 50. So wow. <laughs> pretty Yikes. soon, pretty soon, it's getting there. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's jump into some questions, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Blair asks, and this is a little bit of follow-up. How did uh, Tales from the Crypt come about for you? How were you approached? And did you get any say over which story you directed? 
Um, last question first. Uh, no, I did not get any say. What, on a television series, they basically have the scripts written, not all at once. Um, it's piecemeal. You agree to a time period rather than a specific script. Um, I had worked with producer Gil Adler before on um, Freddy's Nightmares. I did uh, an episode um, called Killer Instinct on Freddy's Nightmares. And so Gil and I had worked together well. The stand had come out and become quite a sensation. And I was thrilled to be invited to join the group on Tales from the Crypt, which included a, lot, a heady collection of filmmakers in the genre. So um, that was how I got involved with it and had a blast doing it. And it it's one of the few that was a little more comedic. Um, so I actually hired... Uh, stand-up comics to play the leads, Rita Rudner and Richard Lewis. So it was a great experience, very fast um, and very much on the run, but really, really fun. And if you guys haven't had a chance to check out our Tales from the Crypt episode from a couple weeks ago, where Mick interviewed Gil Adler, Adler and Alan Katz, uh, it's really worth it. It's a great, great, great episode. Yeah, um, they really open up in ways you don't expect. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, another little bit of uh, follow up from our last AMA, David asks, uh, in a recent podcast, you discussed a number of screen use props that you've retained uh, for, from some of your previous films. My question is, if you could have any horror related screen use prop from any other iconic or favorite horror film, what would it be? I don't know. You know, I've got the butcher knife from psycho four but i'd love to have the original from the original psycho uh, that's pretty cool perhaps a life mask where they designed the makeups for boris karloff would love to have that i know rick baker has life masks of of karloff and cheney and and uh tor johnson oh uh, wow wow uh, something like that you know uh I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I was like uh, I was thinking Freddie's glove. Oh, there um, you go. That's, that's an obvious. Right, yeah. right. I mean, that feels like something that if someone saw it, they would know instantaneously what it was and what it was from. Yeah, um, and I sure wouldn't mind having a dinosaur from Jurassic Park. <laughs> one of <laughs> the little ones. One of the little ones, yeah. I, I will say, and I'm sure they they're they're redesigned and such. But you know, when you walk into K and B, they have all sorts of, um, you know, these these redesigned, repurposed, uh, lifelike characters from from Jaws and Predators, and yeah. and they had a T Rex there uh, too, which was amazing. Which was really cool. Yeah, all yeah. of the big makeup effects houses have tributes to favorite things or things of their own. I remember working with Stan Winston and going into Stan Winston studios and oh seeing gosh. all the stuff from, they had figures from amazing stories, uh, an episode that I wrote and uh, all, all of the makeup effects guys just love the work so much. And they're there because they love monsters and movies and creatures and things. And, and to see the care with which they adorn their walls and halls is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's it really is for movie fans like being a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Um, all right. Steven asks, how is the project you're currently writing coming along? Coming along well as of this date. Uh, we, we've finished writing the uh, 
first draft of the pilot to be turned in. There was a lot of writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting. It's just been turned into the network and wow. uh, we are waiting for their feedback. Ah, isn't that, that is always the, uh, the, the Schrodinger's uh, cat moment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it could right now, it could be anything. They could love it. They could hate it. They could green light it instantly. They could give you notes. They could, it's literally, you don't know what is in that box. It could be any response. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But we're pretty excited about it. And I know they've been anticipating uh, it, it's taken a little longer than expected to deliver the draft for a number of reasons, but it is in their hot little hands for their weekend read. And we That's... will see what happens from there. Fingers and it could and... be any number of things. Like you said, it could be, they love it. It could be, they hate it. It could be, they love what it could be and what changes, um, or it's too expensive or why don't we do this? but it is for a, a new anthology series. So it doesn't necessarily lay the groundwork for a whole group of characters and circumstances. Right. Right. It's more about setting the the tone and atmosphere for the series to come. Right. Um, and setting up a Cracker Jack first story. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm excited for you. That's a, that's a great place to be. And it's an, and it's a, exciting place to be um yeah, thank you, know, you. All, uh, all digits are crossed yes mine mine too for you um, thank you all right jason asks when writing horror how do you come up with set pieces for scares and gore interesting trying to tap into what's personal to you you know mm -hmm. in telling a story you're telling a story in which you are every one of the characters from the inside. A bad movie, the characters are all from the outside. They are all prototypes. They are all people who do and say things that they would do under normal circumstances in every other movie or TV show. So approaching storytelling from the inside is the first step. And what scares you will probably scare other people as well. If you can draw from experience, even imagined experience, that's something. Um, but, you know, we fear pain, death, illness for ourselves and for the loved ones around us. If you can make it personal and you can approach it from a unique perspective, you know, um, when I was doing chocolate, people didn't think of it as a horror story, but that, that was my first um, Masters of Horror episode that I wrote and directed based on a short story. And I approached something, a story I'd never seen before, where someone experiences what it is like to commit a brutal and bloody murder from the bl hot blood running down your arms from the blade that pierces the abdomen and all of that. And and I hadn't read or seen that story before. And that's the starting point. Yeah. Um, you know, it. the more personal you can make it and the more fearlessly you attack what's inside your gut and your 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 heart, um, I think the more successful a, ch a chance you have at telling a successful, frightening story. Yeah. I mean, what you brought up on, on chocolate is kind of how I, I approach it. Uh, I, I don't know if you think this way as well, but to me, the themes and the challenges that your characters have to face throughout those themes sometimes open the doors for those particular types of scares and set pieces that they'll have to face. 
you know um for instance uh the the movie that we wrote that just shot is an online dating horror story so a lot of the scares are all built around taking what are kind of classical dating tropes and trying to find nightmarish spins uh for them right that's that's a really great point is taking a set piece that may start out seeming familiar but taking it in a dreadful place that it has not gone before yeah exactly a surprising place yeah and i think and i think but you know but it has to be rooted in in the theme and the journey and the character's journey and, and such yeah um, host is a great example of that oh yeah yeah exactly like like we're going to do a movie about characters on zoom right doing a seance on zoom how can we then extrapolate scares from that premise and from from those challenges that those characters are going to face i think you know because because this comes up a lot when uh especially like talking to producers and executives about horror stories in their their infancy you know they're like well where are the scares it's like the scares will come as we continue to explore the the world yeah, you know storyline is what comes first and then you take those tributaries that lead you to the the hearts of darkness yes i agree i agree so hopefully that helps jason uh tiny vikings writes <laughs> we love tiny vikings always good questions always tiny vikings writes yeah. uh what makes a great family-friendly horror film is it more of a tone and vibe that stays lighthearted? is it more comedic also now that freeform has announced that hocus pocus will play a bunch of times during 31 nights of halloween <laughs> i'd like to know what mick is going to do with all those royalties <laughs> well royalties from a film that came out in 1993 <laughs> they yeah. shrink every year they yeah well because i think probably people don't understand is um they get kind of uh halved and halved and halved and halved over time right i mean right, it's like, every year there's yeah. like a per, there's like a percentage drop every time it gets recirculated i think right right um, yeah uh, and and by now those especially on cable tv commercial cable tv it costs more to cut the check than the amount of the check <laughs> so uh, i mean I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it, it is not vast. But as far as a family-friendly horror movie, there are a lot of entry-level horror movies, and Hocus Pocus is a good example of that. You know, it's the characters are young. That's an important stepping-off point. because, it, But it's also something that respects the young and the parents as well. You know, you don't a true family movie is not just for children. It's something that can be enjoyed by their parents as well so that everybody can go to the movies or sit in front of the set and enjoy it together. Um, obviously, sex and violence are at a minimum and that's a choice. Uh, the ratings board has a lot to do with that. But if you know the audience you're going after, you put yourself in the position of that if your aim is at a 14 year old remember the inner 14 year old that you've embraced and you have not given up it's one of the great things about being able to work in the creative arts is in many ways you're not forced to grow up you're not forced to quash that child that that lives within you the imaginative child that plays games and tells stories um 
but a sense of humor is definitely a good way to lead them in. Make the scares scary, but you're not out to gross someone out, gross out the audience, or horrify them with vivisection. You know, you you just need to know who your audience is for, and then we can lead them down the path <laughs> in their exactly. adult years. Open open the doors, open the doors. That's I mean that's that's how it worked for me. Was you know. Uh, movies like Hocus Pocus and Emblem movies and such kind of paving the way towards spookier and spookier stories. So um, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if it attracts you at an early age, it usually stays with you and it deepens and darkens. And, and thank goodness that in the world of international horror, there's plenty of horror that's intended not just for adolescence, which is, you know, going from childhood hocus pocus to adolescence and the splatter movies. Sure. Uh, is, you know, that's a really recreational embracing of that which your parents would not. Right. Uh, but then moving on towards deeper, darker stories that are much more human and internal and psychologically based, which is still embraced all over the world more so than in the united states there is literally horror for every age <laughs> there is indeed yep Goose all right come on exactly all right bark eater productions writes with hollywood full of so many aspiring and established screenwriters why do you think the studios keep cranking out awful remakes that no one asks for <laughs> Well, because they think because they're successful, yeah. you know, they don't do what they think is the best storytelling. They put out the movies that they know how to sell or think they know how to sell and are familiar with. And IP, that dreaded term of IP, intellectual uh, property. Yes, intellectual property. Um, a familiarity is what they're going for. These most of the studio executives have no knowledge or love for the horror genre other than the big titles, the screams and the Freddies and the, you know, Stephen King and, and franchises that they have had success with before. Right. There's a lot of really brilliant stuff being written and a lot of it really being made as well, but it's in a very independent sense and it's hard to find that stuff. Right. As far as the studios go, they want the tried and true because they don't know how to, to recognize what's new and exciting and then how to market something that's not like everything else out there. They're very risk averse. That, that's a good term. Yep. Very risk averse and uh, intellectual property is safe. If the if it doesn't work, they can point to the intellectual property and say, "But it worked before, right?" Uh, which is so a we'll lot. We'll try easier. it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, but which is, but it's that's a, a lot safer way to try and keep your job than taking a chance on something new and having it not work. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love something like the studio will make a quiet place, like nothing else out there. Yeah. And it was a huge hit, and it yeah. was. Fantastic. Of course, then they did Quiet Place too because they'd had a hit and they thought they could replicate the experience. And now they're doing a spinoff and a third one and blah, 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 blah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So onwards with the arts. <laughs> I'm I'm still all in on who's on first. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> all right. Gary wants to know what motivates you to continue telling stories? The ability to. 
you know, um, I've always loved it. It's exciting. I've actually made a career out of doing that on the screen and on the page. And uh, I just love telling stories. It's something that's innate from the dawn of man, from cave paintings on, the ability to come up with stories that will take the viewer or the listener or the reader in directions they don't expect and to to maybe relate situations or emotions together you know we it's a way to be tribal without being in the same room together so uh, just being able to continue doing that for a living basically i've often referred to it as dreaming awake my job is to dream awake I think it's also interesting that you've said in past as well that you don't really actually dream very often. I no, found that to be not that I remember. Yeah, I, yeah. I, my, I, I feel like every night I'm, I'm putting on shows in my head. I can't remember most of them, but I know I've, I've dreamt because I usually wake up exhausted from them. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do that. And I'm sure yeah. I dream, uh, you know, scientifically they say everybody dreams a lot every night. Yeah. It's just that I rarely remember them. Sometimes right. I'll wake up feeling, oh, this dream. But as soon as I come awake, it's like smoke, it's gone. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but I rarely remember dreams that I recall. I don't know if you've ever uh, found yourself in this position as well, but, um, you know, in, in response to Gary's question, you know, now that I'm a few years into my career, uh, when I do have those crises of faith of, of should I keep doing this, I also then realize I don't think I'm equipped to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be limited, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I'm do like, not well, have many I, abilities. I yeah. guess I have to keep going because this is the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is that I would do it if I wasn't doing it for a living. Right. Whether right. it's just on the page or getting a bunch of friends and family together to create movies or or visual stories. Um I would do that regardless of whether I was getting paid for it or not. Yeah, I agree. I think I'd be very unhappy if I all of a sudden got, you know, a nine to five tomorrow and just stopped making movies and stopped watching movies. I think I, I think I would be very unhappy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I usually do that math in my head and then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I got to write the next one. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the writing of, of short fiction and, and novels as well. The reason yeah. I did that was in between film projects because there right. is nothing between me and the screen or the page and writing prose is the final product. Yeah. And it, allows you to exercise those creative muscles without interference. I, um, that is a, a, um, creative challenge. I have not wanted to, uh, take on just yet. And I, uh, I certainly respect everyone who has, has done it. Um, and you're quite good at it. So, oh, well, uh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I find it, I find it intimidating, uh, the idea of writing, writing prose fiction, but, uh, ah, it's um, fun. you know, maybe, maybe, maybe down the road, I'll explore it. Uh, not yet. <laughs> um, okay. We, we've been asked this question before in, in different ways. Um, but I, I have kind of a, a, a different spin on it that I think might be worth talking about. Um, but Peter writes, Nick and Joe, 
I'm a screenwriter and author in LA with a couple of credits to my name, but feel the only way to level up and get out of the assistant realm is to start putting whatever small amount of money I can towards producing my own short and then eventually a feature horror film. Do you have any advice? Um, I think Mick, you know, uh, it's, I think there's a lot of people who put a emphasis on making a short or making an independent feature is like the be all end all. Like once I do that, I will have, I will have quote unquote made it in some regard. Right. It's a step and it's a calling card. Right. Right. You know, it is, you know, having an independent feature, a micro budget feature finished, even if it's terrific, where are people going to see it? What's the yeah. platform? Who's going to buy it? Who's going right. to distribute it? Right. How can it reach eyeballs? Yeah. Uh, and and even more so for a short film. Yeah. It's great to do that, but consider it a calling card. If yes. you're lucky, right. it's Blair Witch Project. You right. Know, and explodes into a theatrical phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the very least, you'll have a calling card that shows what you're capable of doing with limited resources. Now, yeah. nobody who's hiring you is going to give a damn about your resources because they see things made at all budget levels and they don't mm -hmm. they can't use that as an excuse. Well, it would be better, except I only had ten thousand dollars to make this movie. Well, right. Yeah. And it's then it's not better. And it's not just because of the money. You should have made your project that could be well made at that budget. And that and that's where I think I'm I'm getting at is I feel like, you know, if you are writing and you're not finding success yet with your writing, I think keep writing, keep sharpening those skills, keep getting better because that is a a, a very cost effective way to continue to improve your storytelling skills. Um because yeah, what's I think people is are more likely to buy a, a script that they like than they are to hire a director who has only made shorts. I think so. A hundred percent. Nobody wants to hire a first time director. And even if you do do a feature, I think the thing that people forget is once you've done it, you essentially have to start over and do it again. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we just got a, a note from our uh, post-producer, Chris Price. Uh, yes, I agree. Filmmaking is accumulative. Uh, the more you do it, the better you get. And the better you get at it, whether it be writing or or actually directing, the more likely you will find the success you want. I think putting too much emphasis on doing one movie and having that be the thing that changes everything is is actually can be a very unhealthy way to view the creative process. Yeah, you can jump onto YouTube and see hundreds of thousands of feature films that have not gotten farther than YouTube. Some yeah. of them really good and and some are calling cards. I agree. So I think uh, I think Peter, you know, if you're if you're if you're not getting the the traction you want on writing just yet, keep going, keep pushing, keep exploring creatively. And it depends on what your goal is. Is yes. your goal to be a great screenwriter or is your goal to be a director? Yes. For me and for you, Joe, we both got our opportunities as writers first before given an opportunity to direct. Right. Right. So I, one, one can pave the way into the other and, and we're great examples of that. But, but I think, I guess what I'm just trying to say is like, just because you've written one script or just because you've, you've directed a short or directed a feature, that's not necessarily going to be the be all end all thing. And uh, you know, you should be ready to make 
multiple shorts, multiple features, write multiple scripts, and eventually those right set of circumstances will will happen. Look, I've been doing this now, oh my God, for 40 years. And yeah. uh, and it's never easier. Yeah. You know, it never gets easier. Yeah. Yeah. To for sure. To start over every time. Every time. That's yeah. I think, you know, it's and I kept waiting for it to happen in between these last couple of movies. Like, oh, when is when is it going to get easier? And it doesn't. It's literally you start over every yeah. single time. Yeah. Um, and you do. So, and, and it's great because it makes you do your best work. It doesn't let you get lazy unless, you know, your first movie comes out and it makes $200 million. Um, then you get a lot of opportunities thrown at you. And in some people's hands, they become quite laissez-faire about it. Yeah, but I think there's also, I mean, for the good filmmakers, there's the challenge of besting yourself, right? Yes. Yes. So, and that, that is, it's a, it's a whole new set of challenges. But either way, you're starting over and there's a great challenge ahead. So yeah, just something yeah, yeah. to keep yeah. in keep in mind as uh as you as you you know head towards uh making that jump into directing. Yeah. Um okay, our last question. Sam wants to know, do you have any theories as to why it is that so few mummy movies have been made over the years when compared to the countless other classic monster movies, vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein's monster, etc.? The mummy is such an iconic monster, and although it regularly appears in horror and Halloween imagery, actual mummy films are few and far between. Why do you think this is? Why is the mummy such an iconic and timeless character so underrepresented in the horror genre? Is it time once again for this undead icon to shamble out of its sarcophagus <laughs> onto the silver screen? So we get our long questions when they come in email, right? <laughs> That's right. And that is a uh, an edited down version. Uh, <laughs> again, filtered, but but uh, but I think the question is still very clear and, and still very relevant. Nick, there's a very are... there's a very easy answer, and then I'll elaborate on it. The the easy answer is mummies just aren't scary. Yeah. You know, they I made a joke with Stephen King once and it ended up in one of his books. I think it was from a Buick eight where uh, the, people are talking about the mummy. And I, I just said, uh-oh, here comes the mummy. We'd better walk a little fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shambling corpse in dust and rags Yeah, that doesn't have a lot to do. Now, I have worked on two mummy films that never got made. That's right. Um, one of them, Clive Barker, uh, had come up with an idea for the mummy that was totally unlike anything else you'd you'd ever seen in not just any mummy film, but any other movie. And uh, uh, he came up with the story and I wrote the screenplay. And I knew when this was being written, I thought, why is Universal funding this? <laughs> They're <laughs> never going to make it. <laughs> and we turned in the script. And to this day, I've never heard back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how much it scared them. But there was a period of time when Clive was going to direct it then. Potentially, I was going to direct it because he got busy on something else. And then George Romero was going to uh, write and direct an, a, a version of The Mummy that was more in line with the classic Universal uh, original, the the Mummy Goat. But um, right. that was a really good script. It was a lot of fun. 
but he was given a choice of doing that or a go movie. And so he took the go movie and he had to leave that project. So it came into my hands. I was hired to rewrite it and to direct it as a $15 million mummy movie. Right. Well, that's when Sid Sheinberg was kind of booted from running Universal Studios. He was the president of the company and they gave him a, um, a producing job so he could choose anything in the pipeline and take it on. So he chose the mummy and decided to turn it into Raiders of the Lost Mummy and made the Brendan right. Fraser movie version, which right. uh, was an adventure story, which maybe the mummy is better suited as an adventure story than as a horror story. Although they keep trying to do that. The, the well, first it's, cer one, it's certainly better than the action version they tried. Yeah, the Tom uh, Cruise version. <laughs> which we will not get into because we, we, we try not to... Uh, be negative about movies yeah, on this but that again is an but, adventure story yeah uh, yeah i but i think the brendan fraser one was 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 much stronger overall uh and look and by the way has grown into like having quite a, a cult following i mean there are, are people who are my age and younger that worship that movie yeah um, so you didn't you know, see raiders of the lost ark first <laughs> <laughs> well i did but oh, well, actually, okay fair uh, enough yeah but you know i think when you're a kid and you love indiana jones yeah, of and all course. Of a sudden another indiana jones like movie comes along yep. uh of course you embrace it you know yeah. uh, for a long time that was probably like the unofficial fourth indiana jones movie you know? yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> true enough i i have a question about and I'm curious to get your thought. Do you think that one of the reasons mummy movies, like you said, they're not scary because, you know, you can outrun them, right? Uh, but, but do you think that one of the reasons the mummy movies kind of faded out is because zombie movies replaced them? Yeah, zombies are more ferocious. Zombies started out as shambling, slow creatures and right. more often than not still are until... And also the undead, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, they are the undead. They're the unwrapped undead. Um, right. So, you know, you had Dan, Danny Boyle come along with 28 Days Later and there were fast zombies. Abby Bernstein, who wrote my biography, um, actually did a version of the mummy script before George Romero did uh, for Universal. Yeah. And she introduced the idea of fast of a fast mummy, which nobody oh, had done wow. before. That's pretty cool. Um, so that was way back then, and uh, nothing came of that. But um, yeah, I mean, zombies are much more interesting than mummies. And, you know, I've certainly had my fill of zombie movies until once in a great while somebody does something brand new and exciting with it. And it's like, oh, okay, there's still life in the undead. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, but that's something I just, while you were talking, I kind of thought, you know, could, could that have been one of the reasons why have they just been, were they, were they literally market corrected and, and yeah. <laughs> replaced? Yeah. You know? Maybe so. Maybe yeah. so. Yeah. Because when you think of a mummy, you do think of a slow shambling, dusty creature. But so I guess that being said, and, and your comment about, uh, zombies somehow always seeming to find a way to surprise you. I, I wouldn't necessarily say we were, were closing the sarcophagus on uh, mummies, <laughs> right? Like there still might be a way to bring somebody a can breathe new, new, new life into it. 
believe me, the Clive Barker version would have breathed very new life into it in ways no one would have expected. Absolutely. Well, and look at look at uh, what Lee Wanell did with the Invisible Man. I mean, he he, yeah. he was able to completely re-energize uh, what was otherwise probably a very dusty old Universal IP. So yeah, uh, that was that was dead for decades. You know, yeah. John Carpenter did the memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase, but that's right. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe uh maybe someone will find a way to unravel this mummy mystery uh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right on that <laughs> note mick uh thank you for another wonderful ask mick anything and thanks to all our fans for sending great questions thank um, you joe and thank you everybody all of the listeners and please if you're enjoying the show um rate and review us on apple podcasts and spotify and wherever you get your pods so joe how can everybody get their questions to ask me almost anything almost anything <laughs> uh you can send your questions to our new and though at this point it's not so new anymore our email address <laughs> ask mick anything at gmail.com or you can find mick on twitter and instagram at Nick Garris PM, or you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham respectively, and send us your questions there. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.